Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, to Mark chapter 15 and take your notes out from the worship folder. Um, we're coming to the end of looking at the Gospel of Mark together. Uh, we've done for over a year. Um, you know, the first two books that I read after becoming a Christian were uh, somebody had given them to me, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, which I would heartily recommend you reading if you've never read it. Uh, the other book is Pilgrim's Progress uh, by John Bunyan. Out of curiosity, how many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, bunch of hands. If you've never read that book, I would encourage you to read that at some point. It, the, the complete title is The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which Is to Come. And it's a Christian allegory written by John Bunyan, uh, in 1678, it's considered one of the most significant works in Christian fiction, uh, theological fiction, in the English language. It's been translated in, into over 200 languages. It's never been out of print uh, since that time. Um, I remember reading that right after I became a Christian, and I, I want to read to you one little section of that book, which... Um, I could so identify with having just come to faith in Christ myself. Um, so this is it. Uh, I think every Christian knows this to be true. Christian, name of the main character, ran until he came to a place that was up a hill from where he stood. And on that hill stood a cross. And so I saw in my dream that when Christian came up to the cross, there was a tomb in front of the cross. Christian's burdens started to loosen from off his shoulders and fell from his back into the tomb, and he could no longer even see his burdens. Christian was glad and lighthearted and proclaimed with great joy, he has given me rest by his sorrow, and he has given me life by his death. And then Christian stood still for a moment to look and to marvel. For it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross could so ease him of his burden. He looked and kept staring and could not stop weeping for joy. And then Christian gave three leaps for joy and could not stop singing. And here's what he's saying. So far have I come loaded down by my sin and nothing I could do could ease the grief that I was in until I came to this place of the cross, the place of greatest joy ever. So strong was my joy. I could hear the burden fall off my back as the string that bound it to me broke. But the rope that bound me was nothing like the shame Jesus went through for me. Well, last week we looked at Jesus' crucifixion. And this week we're looking at his death and his burial. So at the top of your outline it says this, that Jesus was born to die. And he fulfills his mission on the cross. Mark seems to emphasize the forsakenness of the great king. On the cross, he was separated from his father. 
Jesus is the sacrificial servant who completes his mission by enduring injustice, abuse, crucifixion, and death. So let's read our passage, Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Well, this is God's word. We're going to stop there. We're going to pick it up with the rest of the passage in a little bit. But Mark highlights six things that are a part of Jesus' death. Uh, And in these verses that we're looking at, we want to take a look at these. So the first one was that darkness was over the whole land. Uh, the darkness over the whole land. At noon, it says in verse 33, came, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. When the sun had reached its highest point in, in, at, at, at noon, darkness overtook the whole land. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that. Uh, being from Kansas, I have. It's been noon, bright middle of the day, and then all of a sudden I see these dark clouds coming in, and I know it's going to storm and thunder, and it literally becomes so thick with those dark clouds, it is dark outside. You have to put your lights on to be able to see. It's, it, it, if any of you are from the Midwest and I see some head shaking, you know what that's like. Well, there are at least four places in the Old Testament where darkness represents, and it, this, you've got that on your outline, Uh, It was a supernatural darkness. That's what it was. It was a sign of God's judgment. Think of it like at Jesus' birth, uh, it was dark. He was born at night, and and God's glory overtook the night. This is kind of the opposite of that. It's like the darkness was God's announcement that that the Lamb of God was giving his life for the sins of the world, that he was being judged, if you will. The second event that Mark highlights, uh, number two on your outline, is Jesus' cry of anguish. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the cry of verse 34, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. Uh, It was the, the, the cry, it was in Aramaic, Uh, and it has nothing to do with Pastor Eloy's name. Uh, His name is Hispanic. This is Aramaic. Uh, This wasn't a cry of physical pain. 
This wasn't a cry of Jesus dreading death, but the cry of God the Son who was experiencing something he had never known for all eternity, and that is separation from his Father. A forsakenness, if you will. Tim Keller, in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, uh, captures this really well, and you've got the quote on your outline. Uh, This forsakenness, this loss, was between the Father and the Son, who had loved each other from all eternity. The love was infinitely long, absolutely perfect, and Jesus was losing it. Jesus was being cut out of the dance. Jesus, the maker of the world, was being unmade. Why? Jesus was experiencing our judgment day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me was not a rhetorical question. And the answer is for you, for me, for us. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. Isn't that what what it says in Hebrews? My God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. The judgment that should have fallen on us fell instead on Jesus. It's like what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. This was the price he paid to be a ransom for many. Remember, our key verse in Mark is Mark 10, 45. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And why does Jesus call his father God when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And not father? Well, maybe it's just because he's quoting the verse, but maybe... In this one moment, he views himself not as the father's son, but as our sacrifice, a sacrifice for our sin. And in verses 35 and 36, some mistakenly thought he was calling out to Elijah, and they ridiculed him even more, starting in verse 35. Look, he's calling on Elijah. Let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. So how are we to understand this? God separated from God? God the Father separated from God the Son? You know, if I could understand everything about God, then maybe I would cease to be finite or God would cease to be infinite. He is meant to blow our minds. As a finite mind, we will never understand all there is to understand about God. It's just like we can scrape the surface. That's all we can do. I'll never understand it. We'll never understand God forsaking God here. We'll never understand all that happened on the cross. But I will forever praise Jesus for what he did for me on that cross. The third event that Mark highlights is that Jesus died and opened the way to his father. In verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. So Jesus is on the cross. He's suffocating. His lungs are filling with his own blood. And if we harmonize this with the gospel of John, 
it seems that this is when Jesus cries out, it is finished. The work of salvation is done. In other words, all sins are now forgiven. If we simply receive the gift of salvation that only Jesus offers us. And he's not just talking about the sins that you can remember. He's talking about all your sins in the past. He's talking about all the sins that that you will commit at some point in the future. That's what he's talking about. So let me ask you, when Jesus died on the cross, how many of your sins were in the future? All of them. He died for all of your sins. Why? So that we could be put right with God, so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ, like it says in 2 Corinthians 5. And we sin, and there's shame, and there's guilt, and there's fear. And we thought we loved Jesus, but we can't keep his commandments like we want to. And the Holy Spirit reminds us of how bad our batting average really is when it comes to obeying the commandments of God. And that leads us, his love leads us to repentance. We're reminded that our sin is covered in his righteousness. And that's what leads us to repentance. And we keep on growing in our relationship with God, just like Christian kept on walking in the Christian life in Pilgrim's Progress. And so now, let me ask you, are you up to date on your confession of sin? You see, we have this amazing promise given to us in 1 John 1, 9. If you've never memorized that verse, please memorize it. For the good of your own soul, memorize that verse. It says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a promise. And if we're living in that forgiveness, if we're living in the grace of God, you know what will happen? We'll not only be able to live with ourselves and live and bask in the forgiveness of God, we'll be able to forgive other people. So let me ask you, are there people in your life that you need to forgive? Are there people that you're holding a grudge against? Because if there are, you're not living in the grace of God. And he wants you to live there because he wants you to bask in his forgiveness and he wants you to be able to forgive others and live in that forgiveness. Is it easy? No, it's not easy. But that's what he calls us to do. That's why he gives us his Holy Spirit to strengthen us to do what he calls us to do. And then the fourth event that Mark highlights is the tearing of the temple curtain in verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. One commentator describes it like this, that this inner curtain consisted of two curtains that were 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, as thick as the palm of a man's hand woven into separate squares and joined together. Think of how thick and big that curtain is. And no man could even think of tearing that apart, but for God, it was nothing. And God did that. 
And this curtain is significant because it's what separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And it's so rich in symbolism. I could preach a whole sermon on just the, the, the richness of the symbolism of, of, the, of the curtain. But I've mentioned a few of them on the outline. The sin that created a barrier between us and God. And now that barrier's removed. It points to the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new covenant. God is now fully accessible to me through Christ and dwells in my heart by faith. And now I don't have to bring sacrifices. I don't have to count on the high priest to go and and ask forgiveness in the Holy of Holies for me. I get to enter into the very presence of God. Now God, through his Holy Spirit, lives in me and lives in you as a believer. Wow, that should blow our minds. Outside of the Trinity, you are the hottest commodity in the universe because God lives in you. And then the fifth event that Mark highlights is the confession of the Roman centurion. Verse 39, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. This is the destination point that Mark has been taking us to since Mark chapter one, verse one. And who do we hear this confession from? From the lips of a Gentile Roman centurion. And think of when those words came. They didn't come after Jesus performed a miracle. They didn't come after he'd preached a sermon or or, or said a parable, or done something else. They came when he was dying on the cross. And like the centurion, Mark wants his readers. That's us. He wants us to confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's what he's leading us to. Have you? I know most of you have. If anyone hasn't, I'm going to give you a chance at the end of this message to to do that, to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. This isn't just an event that happens here. This is an event that needs to happen in each of our lives. Because you will confess Jesus as Lord one way or the other. Because every knee will bow and confess Jesus as Lord. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. There are a couple of things to think of here. First, um, if, if, if you, it's, first of all, it's, it's confessing Jesus as Lord, but then also, as a believer, who do you need to confess Jesus before? Are there people in your life that need to hear the good news of Jesus that you have and you need to share with them? If there are, then, then by all means, be praying for them. Be inviting them. That's why we give you the invitations. That's why Easter is now, because we want you to invite your friends so that they can hear the good news about Jesus. And so bring them, invite them. Is there someone that you need to share with and talk to? If there is, by all means, do it. You know, this story of the centurion at the foot of the cross is mentioned in three gospels. You know, when when you're 
raising your kids and you need to communicate something to your kids, usually you need to say it to them a few times. I think this is, there's not, it's not a mistake that this is there three times in the Gospels because he wants to make clear to us that this is something God wanted us to see. The reaction of this pagan Roman soldier to Jesus. God wanted the impact of Christ's death on that centurion when he recognized Jesus and said, truly, this is the son of God. He wants us to do the same thing, to confess Jesus as our savior and our Lord. And think of the advantages that we have over the centurion. We have God's word in our hand, in the Bible. This is before the resurrection. And what this means is we need to know the word of God. We need to hide it in our hearts. We need to memorize it. We need to study it. We know things about Jesus and his sacrifice that this pagan centurion would have never considered. But sometimes we have a problem. And our problem is that we don't see Jesus like this centurion obviously did see Jesus. We don't understand, we don't feel what he went through looking at the cross and Jesus dying on the cross. We can meditate on it and we should. You want victory over sin, focus on the cross. See your sin on the cross. Turn it into a mini worship service. Thank God for dying for for whatever sin you're struggling with on the cross. And then finally in these verses, uh, number six, we see the witness of the women. Some women were watching him from a distance. It's interesting that you, you, when you get to the climactic events of Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, all the male disciples have vanished. They're not around. They're scared. They lost hope. They're gone. And so there are no men mentioned by Mark, but there are four women, three that Mark mentions and Matthew adds another one. You've got a list of them on the outline. These women were true disciples. They followed Jesus. They cared for him. So who's faithful to the bitter end? These women. They were there. One of the reasons this is so interesting is that in both Jewish culture and Roman culture, a woman's testimony had no legal status, none whatsoever. Basically, every ancient culture agreed that women's inferiority, they said, made them unreliable. And yet, who does God trust as witnesses at the most crucial moment in the history of the world, in the history of salvation. He trusts a group of women with the whole story. The women see, the women know what's going on. The women were the only ones who could say, I witnessed it, I witnessed his death, I was there for his death, I was there for his burial, I was there for his resurrection. They saw the whole thing. 
God makes women his witnesses at a time in history when no other society would have ever trusted them with the same job. What does that mean? Is it just, oh, wow, nice, God was way ahead of his time or something? No, it's way more than that. It's one of the strongest pieces of evidence that we have that the resurrection really happened. If this were made up, and this is on your outline, you would never have women as the main witnesses to these events. Look at what Michael Green says in one of his commentaries. You've got the quote on your outline. This supreme, the supreme irony, the supreme humor, the supreme surprise value of Almighty God that when he does his greatest acts in the creation of the world and raising his son from the dead, he attests it through the lips of those who were so widely discounted in the world. The most plausible explanation for why women would be in these historical accounts is because the women were actually there. There's no other good reason to put them in. In fact, that would have been an embarrassment if you were trying to get the pagan world and the Jewish world to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The presence of these women is proof that these events actually happened. The resurrection did happen. And this is one of many proofs that there are. So now let's look at the burial. When Christians in the first century struggled with their own uh, fear of death, or when they struggled with the, the, the fear of death of a loved one, of someone that they cared for and loved. Paul reminded them in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 and gives all these reasons why that if Christ was raised from the dead, so we also will be raised from the dead. And then Paul writes to the Christians in Thessalonica, do not, we do not want you to be uninformed, my brothers and sisters, about those who have died so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. You know, I do a lot of funerals and I've done funerals for believers and I've done funerals for unbelievers and the difference is night and day because Christians have hope. We have hope because we know how the story ends. Non-Christians weep because it's all over for them. That's all they have. They have no hope. I don't know um, how many of you watched the final four on the final game on Monday, but um, if you didn't, I want to let you know that Kansas won. Um, and uh, at halftime, it did not look very good because we were behind by 15 points. And I was texting my brother and my son. It was pretty depressing. I was like, I think I'm going to shut it off. I can't watch the last half. And my brother was like, I think it's over because I can't believe they've let this game get away from them. But I decided to watch the second half. And man, am I glad I did. Because they had the biggest comeback ever in a final game. And they won the game. And um, I, I was 
pretty excited about that win. Uh, first time since 2008, I think, was the last time they won. And um, since that time, I-, I want you to know I've watched the last half four times. <laughs> and each time, I enjoy it more. And you know why I enjoy it more? Because I know how it ends. We win. And you know what? I want to give you a summary of the book of Revelation. I can give you a two-word summary. We win. We know how the story ends. And so that's the way we need to live our lives. We need to live our lives like we know how the story ends because we do know how it ends. And so remember that when, you, when, you, when something in your life is discouraging to you, you've got to step back and say, Lord, give me wisdom. Help me to see life and this situation from your perspective. And God's perspective is eternal. And that's how he wants you to see your life and every bad thing that happens in your life. And you think, why are you letting this happen, God? Well, I'll tell you why. He's got a bigger perspective than you do. You have a finite perspective. God has an infinite perspective. And he's trying to make you to be like his son, Jesus. That's what his goal is. And despite Jesus' best effort to teach his disciples the truth, as the sun began to set on the darkest day in human history, it was so discouraging for them. All they could do is mourn their dead king. From their perspective on that day, they felt like they left everything and followed Jesus for nothing. For them at that moment, all hope died when Jesus took his last breath. And so you have this on your outline. We don't know, we, we do know the end of the story, but Jesus' followers did not know it. Jesus died on Friday at about 3 p.m. And the Jewish Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday around 6 p.m. And after that, no one can work. So let's pick it up at verse 42. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead, summoning the centurion. He asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So this preparation day was 24 hours before the Sabbath began. And they would make double the food so that the women would not have to cook. They couldn't cook on the Sabbath day. And so uh, we learned from Mark that also during this time that not all of the Sanhedrin hated Jesus and wanted him dead. We learned from Matthew that Joseph had become a disciple. But according to John, his discipleship was a secret one for fear of the Jews says in John 19. And it says, starting in verse 43, that Joseph of Arimathea, 
you can circle, underline two words if you underline in your Bible. I hope you do. Two words in that verse. The word prominent and the word boldly. They were, he was a prominent member of the council and he went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. So in verse 43, it says that this, this prominence means that he had power. He was rich. That's another part of being prominent. So in John 19 we learn that Joseph was with, Joseph of Arimathea was with Nicodemus to take Jesus down from the cross and bury him. And so there are three groups of people I want us to consider. You have them on your outline. There's Joseph and Nicodemus. They're the ultimate insiders. They're men, they're wealthy, they have power, they're upper class. And then there are the women who had no power in society. They were marginalized. And then you have the centurion. He's a pagan. He's an idol worshiper. Uh, He's living the way he wants. He cares nothing about the moral law of God. He's living life the way he wants. He's an outsider. But something is happening here. There's a change that is taking place in the heart of Joseph and Nicodemus. Remember, this is before the resurrection. I don't know if they were saved, maybe not at this point, but God was working in their hearts. And I think, again, another one of those key words is the word boldly. They're getting courage they didn't have before. They they go to Pilate, and that took some bravery. But not only do they go to Pilate, they go to Pilate with boldness. You know, in Ephesians 6, Paul, the apostle, who I don't know of anyone more bold than the apostle Paul, But Paul asks the Ephesians to pray for him to have boldness. That always blows me away. Think about this. If Paul asked for prayer for boldness, we ought to be praying that for ourselves and for each other. To be bold to share the gospel with the people, the friends that we're praying for, the people that don't know the Lord. Think about it. The Romans had just tried Jesus and found him guilty of high treason. And the Sanhedrin had found him guilty of blasphemy. And so you've got this on your outline. Now Joseph and Nicodemus, for the first time, are willing to say out loud what they've been keeping a secret. I love what the commentator William Barclay says. He says, eventually, either your secrecy will destroy your discipleship or your discipleship will destroy your secrecy. So is your discipleship destroying your secrecy? I hope it is. Well, when these things were pretty easy, they didn't want anybody to know Joseph and Nicodemus. And now, now that it's really dangerous, they're willing to risk everything to identify with Jesus and bury him properly. And to show themselves as sympathizers to Jesus the Roman, in front of the Roman establishment and in front of the Jewish establishment, that was really risky. They have power. They have money. And this is with the real possibility of losing everything, losing the power that they had. And before, they were afraid of anybody knowing that they were following Jesus, and now they're getting bolder. But they're also getting humbler. Something is more important to them now than their power. They're willing to risk their power. 
And so look at verse 46. Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in the tomb cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. You know, the Jews had a law, it's in Deuteronomy 21, that required that the body of somebody who'd been crucified be buried that same day. And so it's 3 p.m. in the afternoon when Jesus dies. Night falls probably around 6 p.m. So they don't have much time for this to happen. Normally, they would anoint Jesus' body with perfume and, and spices. But because the sun's going down, they're pressed for time. And this was a hard and an awful job. I can't even imagine, you can't imagine nailing someone to a cross. But it's even harder for me to imagine taking someone down like Jesus who had been so beaten, almost to dying, almost to death. And they have to take him down from the cross. How would they do that? And look at verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. This was not an easy job, but you know what? It was usually done by slaves, sometimes even by women. How they did that, I'll never know. But here, Joseph and Nicodemus are doing something that is culturally totally inappropriate. They're prominent men, and they're taking the body of Jesus down from the cross. Do you remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Jesus comes to Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. When does he meet him? It's at night. And it's at night because he's afraid of risking his power. That's why he wants to meet Jesus at night. That was his identity being in the Sanhedrin. It was too important to him to lose his power. And what does Jesus tell him in John 3? Jesus says, you must be born again to even enter my kingdom. It's as if Jesus is saying, and maybe he's saying this to you, all your religion has done nothing to get you into my kingdom. Playing around with God, being a little interested, does nothing to get you into the kingdom of God. All that you've done hasn't got you to the adolescent sta stage spiritually. It hasn't even got you to the toddler stage. You need to be born again. You need to start at the beginning. If you want true spiritual life with me, that's what Jesus is saying. And you've got this on your outline. Jesus is saying you can only be saved by radical grace. The answer is not what the pagans do, just living life the way you want. It's not what the Pharisees were doing. God, you have to bless me and take me to heaven because look how good I am. Look at all the good things I do. It's only by what Jesus says, what John reports in John 1.12, the last verse on the outline, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So what does the cross mean to you? What does the death and burial of Jesus mean to you? Let me just end with this. In the late 1700s, there was a war between England and France. And in France, they had uh, basically a lottery. And if your name was chosen, you had to go to fight the war. The one exception is if somebody would, went in your place. And on one occasion, uh, there was a, a man who had a family and his best friend came to him and said, look, I have no responsibility. I have no family. Uh, you have a family and I'm gonna go in your place. You, I'm gonna take your name and your address and I'm gonna give that to them and, 
And so it just so happened that this man is chosen and the officials come to him and say, you need to go and fight. And he said, I don't need to fight. I died two years ago. You're like, you're crazy. You're standing right here in front of me. What do you mean you died two years ago? And he told them the story of what had happened. And this man took it to the highest general that he could take it to. And the general said, he's right. We have no claim on this man. Why? Because he had died in the person of another. What does the cross mean to us? What does the death and burial mean to you? It means that we have a substitute who's died in our place. Are you living like that? Are you living in the grace of God? We need a substitute. We needed someone who could pay our debt, the debt of death, and cleanse us so that we could be found blameless by God's holy standard. Our substitute would have to be perfect in every way, totally sinless. He would have to be God, the Son. And Jesus was the perfect substitute. Jesus came to triumph in this life. He came to live a sinless life. He came to live a perfect life and a selfless life and then give his life as a sacrifice on the cross. But he didn't just do this. He rose again on the third day. That's what makes the news good. This wasn't just some divine duel between God and Satan punching it out with us in the stands hoping that God wins. Not at all. If you consider the magnitude and the majesty of God, the omnipotent and all-powerful God, you cannot make Satan small enough. He's nothing compared to God. We keep pre- preaching this victorious champion of our faith that, the king, that King Jesus really is because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the victorious king for all ages. Do you know him? If you don't know him, he gives you that opportunity. Back to, first John, back to John 1.12. By receiving him, then you have the right to become the children of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that helps us to understand the death of Jesus. We want to take it into ourselves so that it changes us like it changed Joseph and Nicodemus and the centurion. And if there's anyone here who has never received you as their Savior and Lord, will you draw them to yourself right now? May they respond to you in faith. Thank you, Jesus, for your great love that you had for us to lay down your life for us because you are our Lord and our Savior. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. And now may the God of peace equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.